CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Time for another Political Rewind here at GPB Radio. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm so happy that you're all with us for our discussion of politics in Georgia today. Um, I want to get right to the panel and start our conversation. It is a Thursday show, so Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my partner on the show today. How are you, Kevin? I'm good, and it's good to be with you this morning, Bill. Um, looks like uh, I, I know we've got at least one new person on the show today, so I'm really looking forward to that. As always, you get great guests, and then you bring me along, too. <laughs> you know we're always glad to have you here, Kevin. <laughs> we are joined uh, today uh, by returning uh, professor of political science, Claire Sanders, who teaches at Georgia College in Milledgeville. Claire, in a little while, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is uh, COVID and uh, college campuses. You're right in the middle. You're a university system of Georgia school, and you don't have any uh, mandates uh, because uh, you're a state university down there, right? That's correct, Bill. We are a university system school and no mass mandate, just recommendations, no mandates. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but not before I introduce, as Kevin said, we do have a new panelist on the show today. She is Tammy Greer, a professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University. Uh, Tammy, we're delighted to have you with us. You, I think I'm, I'm right, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, you focus on Atlanta politics, urban politics, um, working on public policy in terms of underserved communities. And I know election law is also one of your interests. Have I got all that right? Pretty much, as well as state and local. Um, I teach state and local courses, so it is my new home in love, state and local politics. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? You're right for the show because our love is state and local politics as well. Tell us a little about yourself. We always like to give our listeners a chance to learn something about our new panelists. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Just give us a little rundown. Uh, Thank you. Uh, I am from a small place. Um, It's a small place with a big heart. It's Galveston Island, Texas. So it's an actual island off the coast of Texas. Um, so I'm now living on the mainland is what we like to call um, the, the actual connection. Um, <laughs> so um, my love and family uh, is in the area at Galveston. Um, I went to originally went to school at the University of Houston downtown for my bachelor's and master's degree and relocated to Georgia about 15 years ago um, and uh, obtained my Ph.D. in political science from Clark Atlanta University. So I am in this teaching. How long have you been teaching at Clark Atlanta? This is my second year as a full-time professor. um, And I've uh, taught there as an adjunct for three years prior to. Okay. Well, again, we're very glad to have you. And uh, uh, we look forward to hearing your comments during our conversation. So Kevin, let's uh, kick things off. Yesterday on the show, uh, we talked a little bit about 
Um, the question came up as to whether hospitals in Georgia were going to have to either start or continue uh, diverting some of their resources strictly to COVID, restricting all but non, uh, um, uh, restricting, restricting all non-essential uh, services in the hospital, procedures in the hospital, because they're being so overwhelmed by COVID. Um, overnight, we learned that Grady Hospital has, in fact, canceled all non-essential outpatient surgeries and procedures, but they're just one of a number of uh, health centers across the state. Uh, Grant Blankenship of our Macon Bureau uh, tells us that Atrium, which is the second largest uh, hospital system in the state, and the only level one trauma center between Macon and the Florida line has, in fact, restricted uh, non-essential services. Phoebe Putney in um, Albany, which was with, with the center, the hot spot for COVID uh, when it first started, uh, is uh, restricting elective surgery, putting it on hold. Uh, Wellstar Systems is looking at shifting some of their operations from outpatient, from the hospitals itself to outpatient uh, surgery centers. Piedmont pausing some of its procedures at a variety of locations. Emory doing the same thing. So, uh, Kevin, across the state, hospitals are really feeling the pain. And just as an example of this, we can say, here's what Grady CEO John Halpert uh, told reporters from your newspaper about making these changes to operations. He said, seriously ill patients with COVID-19 and other significant health issues have inundated the hospital. Kevin, this is a crisis that is not uh, abating. No, and it appears that it's going to just keep getting worse. Um, every now and then, you know, you'll hear some expert talk about, well, uh, maybe this surge will just stop. That's what happened in other countries, but there doesn't seem to be any sign of that right now. And then, you know, another thing about um, about this uh, idea of canceling elective procedures, I think, is the way that hospitals talk about it. Of course, they don't like to do that for all kinds of reasons, but. We actually have uh, a doctor quoted in our uh, story in the AJC today who points out that when people hear elective, they imagine it's sometimes like a cosmetic surgery or something. But but very often, these are important surgeries that people have been trying to get done for a long time, like a knee replacement or a hernia a repair surgery. And so it is a serious situation that the hospitals are so crowded, their staffs are so overwhelmed that they have to take these steps. And again, it does not look like it's getting better anytime soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned some of the procedures which um, may be considered non-essential but are important. I mean, cardiac care. There are people who have heart conditions uh, who are coming into hospitals and uh, not getting uh, care. Uh, your story also uh, cites a, a patient who recently underwent surgery and was released from the hospital but was suffering from symptoms that suggested he had sepsis, uh, which is a life-threatening condition. And the hospital, he went back to the hospital, and the hospital could not take care of this patient, who fortunately has survived. But, um, Claire, this is just an example of how concerning our situation is with healthcare across the state, Claire. Absolutely. So I'm in Milledgeville. That's where I work, but I live in rural Georgia in Eatonton. 
And um, it's not just a, a problem for urban hospitals, but rural access to health care. So the hospitals around here have either no or very limited ICU beds. And so um, patients have to go somewhere else or be taken um, to Atlanta or to Savannah or to other hospitals around the state. And there's no there are no beds available. So in terms of rural access, to, to health care, it's concerning, too, and it's a, it's a crisis. Tammy, um, there's another aspect to this, especially when we hear that Grady Hospital has had to limit its services. Something like 34% of the patients in hospital beds across the state right now are COVID patients, which is an extraordinary number. And the reason I mention Grady right now, again, is that Grady serves as the care center for many people in the minority community who don't have private doctors, don't have health insurance, they turn to Grady, whether it's the right thing to do or not, to the emergency room for basic health care that so many other people get through their private doctors and are insured to get. That's not the case at a Grady. Correct. And I think it's important for us to also put in perspective that it's not just a COVID-related medical concern. Um, that it's a holistic approach that we're missing here. So when we have concerns or, um, or, or mandates or lack thereof when it comes to COVID-specific items, we have to keep in mind that those individuals uh, of, who are receiving or need to receive these uh, elective surgeries, that we like to call them, um, also have concerns um, you know, to, to address. So we need to keep in mind from a healthcare perspective, it's not just one, um, and that action or inaction toward COVID has a ripple effect uh, throughout the entire community. And um, we're losing that as a component when we're talking just about COVID. Kevin? Tammy, Bill makes a, a really great point about the impact of decisions people have made about COVID and how that ripples, right, through the system. I think that's something that does get lost in the discussion. And, and Bill, <laughs> I mean, you have been on this show a un, uh, unafraid advocate about vaccinations, and certainly uh, at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we have taken that position, that people should get vaccinated. And, and so I'm going to throw some statistics at you that we've, that we've reported today. 100% of the ventilated patients at Augusta Health are unvaccinated. 99% of the critical care patients at Northeast Georgia Health are unvaccinated. 92% of the ventilated patients at Wellstar are unvaccinated. I mean, it is a plague of people who have not gotten vaccinated. And, and it certainly seems that people are making that choice. And that choice, besides affecting them, is affecting many other people. So uh, thank you uh, for those startling figures. Uh, your, your story this morning also reports that uh, right now there are uh, something like uh, 5,935 COVID-19 patients in Georgia hospitals who are unvaccinated, to add one more little bit to what you just talked about. So how seriously is the state taking COVID-19? And by that, I mean essentially state officials. We know that Governor Kemp 
has repeatedly said he would like he encourages people to be vaccinated. Uh, he he thinks it's safer to be vaccinated, but he also believes in individual choice and wants to respect people's decisions on what they do about vaccines. But Claire, as an example of what it means when state officials are not willing to maybe get tougher, even with mask mandates. We have a University of Georgia football game on Saturday. They play University of Alabama, Birmingham. Um, They expect Sanford Stadium will be full. And at least as of today, there is no mask mandate. Compared, by the way, to Tiger Stadium at LSU, um, and Louisiana has had terrible COVID uh, problems, Tiger Stadium is requiring everyone who wants entry to that stadium to be vaccinated, to show proof of it. And in fact, they're setting up uh, uh, locations around the stadium where people uh, can be vaccinated and get into the stadium. And yet the university system, Sanford Stadium, one example, your campus, another example where mask mandates are not required. Yes, so I know in the state of Louisiana, I think Governor Edwards just um, recently uh, reinstated the indoor mask mandate. As we know in Georgia, um, Governor Kemp has, um, while, as you said earlier, while he's encouraged vaccines and and masks, there um, he's not a fan of 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 mandates. And so, um, with UGA's game coming up on Saturday, in terms of the the USG policy, there's there's no um, requirement for masks. There's no requirement for ma- um, vaccines, and so that's definitely um, spilling over into the the athletic events as well. And so, um, with our discussion just recently about um, the hospitals and, and cases surging, and um, hospitals being um, overwhelmed and healthcare workers being overwhelmed, will it will time will tell what sort of effect this has or doesn't have on that system. Kevin? But one of the most impressive things about LSU, which, again, I, you know, I don't know how many comparisons we want to draw between, uh, between the two states, but certainly between the two football programs, there are, are plenty of fair comparisons, um, is that they're setting up locations during the day where people can go show their vaccine card or, or get a test and then get a wristband that lets them go in the stadium. Because anybody... Who, you know, anyone who's a sports fan as I am, and when you go to a venue where there are tens of thousands of people to get in, the part of the argument against all this will be the logistics of managing it. And apparently LSU has invested in that. We'll see how it works. Um, but Tammy, right? I mean, at the uh, university center, homecoming activities and other activities have been cur- way curtailed out of concern for this, right? Correct, because we, again, understand the number of individuals that are in the hospital. We understand the impact on healthcare workers. And we also have to understand the impact on families um, and those that are going to be caretakers for these individuals and the impact on the economy, because you don't have individuals able to go to work. So there is, it's, again, it's not just one issue about wearing a mask or being vaccinated. It is the ripple effect that has a greater impact on society overall that seems to get lost in these conversations. Um, and politicizing either vaccinations or masks um, takes does not have uh, take into account um, the impact on rural Georgia. Um, it does not take into account the impact, again, on the economy. 
um, it does not take into account the impact on schools and the students learning and being able to uh, to proceed um, as we want K through 12 as well as our college students to do. So we're really um, disconnected from the whole when we're only focusing on one or placating to one political ideology over another. Tammy, let me make sure that I'm aware of just what the restrictions are at Clark Atlanta University. You have a mask mandate and a vaccine requirement. Help me understand that because you are a private university. Yes. So um, our president, President French, um, and along with the, the um, Atlanta University system, um, um, the AUC, uh, what we've done is for um, mass mandates on campus. So when you are inside or whether you are gathering, um, you will uh, are required to have a mask, um, as well as um, the Clark Atlanta University was um, the, um, a space where all of us students, um, even our families were able to go into to get vaccinated, and we were um, required to do that prior to the start of school. So there are some that have exceptions. At the same time, overall, um, that's what we have there at at the AUC. Um, Claire, I, I want to pick up with you because, again, as part of the University of System of Georgia, there, those requirements are not in place, um, and I believe I'm right. Uh, you're one of your co former colleagues uh, at, at the university, another teacher at the university, uh, quit in a very public way because she said, I can't abide by this. I, I think she might have had a, uh, an, an, a compromised immune system. I'm not actually uh, remembering that specifically, but she said, I can't do it. If you're not going to put mandates in place, I can't teach, Right. And that's what's been interesting about this whole um, issue is that um, in Georgia, you have like the K-12 schools that um, Governor Kemp has expressed, let's leave it up to the to the local governments, the local school districts to decide whether or not to require masks um, or other mitigation strategies. But in terms of the USG, the USG, the state um, school system has not given um, schools autonomy to make those decisions regarding mitigation strategies. And so um, there have been um, faculty members across the system who have resigned um, in, in protest of the, um, of the lack of mitigation strategies. But there's also um, groups of parents and students who are lobbying the university system to um, block any sort of mandates. And, and so far, that has been a pretty a pretty powerful um, lobby. Uh, Kevin, um, it's not just, of course, teachers and students, it's other workers on the, on the state campuses that are concerned. The United Campus Workers of Georgia reports GPB's Ellen Eldridge are going to schedule, have scheduled for today what they're calling a die-in because this is the date of the Board of Regents meeting. And what they've said in their statement is, quote, this event will highlight the dangers of COVID-19 transmission, particularly with surging cases of the highly contagious Delta variant. We feel that these dangers are being exacerbated, Kevin, by Board of Regent policies. Yeah, people forget that. I mean, I think that's a good point about people who work at the universities beyond the teachers and students, because uh, it, it, again, we reported that when UJ started classes back uh, at mid-August, um, 
that brings about 50,000 people to campus. I mean, when you account for students, you account for faculty, you account for all the people who work there. So none of these people, um, you know, really have uh, the protection of a mask mandate. Of course, they can wear masks themselves if they so choose. And uh, I think that there's a lot of encouragement. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, one of my questions for both of our professors uh, and, and I understand Claire, I mean, is an employee of the university system, so we're not going to ask her to, to, you know, uh, to say more than she should, I suppose. But what's the mood on your campuses about this is what I'm most interested in. I mean, how do students and fellow faculty and, and people who work there react? So we'll start with you, Claire, and then I'd love to know how it is at Clark Atlanta as well, Tammy. Um, so what um, we definitely um, are seeing, we're seeing the university system schools, the USG um, instructions are that masks are not required, vaccines are not required, and um, but the universities are encouraging vaccines. Um, I know here at Georgia College we um, have some vaccination um, sites and vaccination um, days for students. And so that you see signs everywhere that say um, mask encouraged in class. Um, the overall um, the overall mood or the overall approach to this is um, basically as a university system school, we're um, implementing USG policies and um, in terms of mass, the mass requirement, you cannot require it, but you, of course, can encourage it or, or recommend it. Well, well, Claire, let me be much more specific. What's mm -hmm. it like in your classrooms right now? How do you feel when you go in? Do you wear a mask to teach? It's, I know that's not pleasant to be able up there lecturing, perhaps with your mask on. How many of your students are masked? How nervous do you get having to be in that environment? So overall, I've been teaching face-to-face -face since um, the beginning of, of when we came back after the, um, the closures in last spring, or I don't know, when was that? It seems like a decade ago now, but um, <laughs> I've been teaching face-to-face, -face, and so I've been teaching in a mask since, um, since that time, and so when masks were required in USG schools. So I'm continuing to mask up. I teach um, a number of students, and... Um, while we have uh, again the the recommendations and the protocol to to recommend the the mask and vaccines um it's up to individual students and so overall i would say this it's it's a voluntary compliance there are students who who do and there are students who who don't tammy um you here you know kevin's right that i've been uh, promoting vaccinations for the last months and months since the vaccine became widely available. But there's another aspect to this, Tammy, on your campus where masks are required. The simple fact of the matter is, I know it's not fun to wear a mask everywhere, but the fact is it's just not that difficult, Tammy. At a certain point, it becomes kind of second nature, and the protests against putting on a mask and the claims that it's so it interferes so much with how you deal with life every day just seem to me to be absurd, to be honest with you, Tammy. So on your campus, y'all wear them. We do. Um, and I stand in front of my students and teach my class with my mask on. Um, so first, if I could say that it's, 
how we feel um, at Clark Atlanta University um, is that we understand, particularly when COVID first began, that the hardest hit communities are those communities that had underlying issues. And um, those underlying medical issues are disproportionately in communities and non-white communities, right? And so as a, an HBCU, we understand that. We looked at data, we understood, and we also understand transmission and how that impacts the community overall. So it's critical for us to, to take um, an understanding and take in mind how we are not just in silos, we um, are, are um, in, in communities. I would also add that, you know, having a mask on helps you to enunciate um, and helps you to speak with what I call your strong <laughs> voice. So it actually is, 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 is helpful in that space. Oh, Tammy, I love you putting a positive spin <laughs> on the mask. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with more in just a minute. We're uh, back with more. Uh, Tammy Greer of Clark Atlanta University joins us today for the first time. Claire Sanders is back from Georgia College. Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, uh, with us as he is on Thursdays. Before we continue, I don't want to oversell this, but I got to tell you, I am so excited about tomorrow's show that I can't even describe it. Our special guest tomorrow is Honoré Fanon Jeffers. She has just published her first novel. She's a poet, an award-winning poet, an essayist. But her new novel, The Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, is probably the most talked about new title so far in 2021. It is a sprawling, epic saga of African-Americans, actually in Georgia, dating all the way back to pre-slavery days when Creek Indians um, were occupied the land in rural Georgia, taking us through slavery and bringing us all the way up to uh, modern day. And, and, and Claire and Tammy, it's interesting to have you both on the show today because Honoré Fanon Jeffers gets a lot of what she wrote about because her family is from Eatonton, Georgia. Her ancestors are from Eatonton. And Tammy, one of the major themes in this book that helped me learn an awful lot about it is about life in HBCUs. What is it like to be at an African American, a historically black African American college? She is, I'm thrilled that we're going to be able to do this show with her tomorrow. And okay, I've already over oversold it too much, but I don't think so. I think it's going to be a terrific show. <laughs> All right. Hey, Kevin Riley, um, just quickly, I was fascinated. We, we know that how, you know, crime in Buckhead is the issue that people are talking about. It's the reason there's a movement to separate Buckhead from the city of Atlanta. Uh, it captures headlines day in and day out. And um, one of the places where that has seen a spike in shootings, particularly, is Lenox Mall. Um, yesterday, Lenox announced a very interesting new policy, which I guess is in place in a couple of other malls in Metro that I'd never been aware of. At, Lenox is going to require that after 3 p.m., teenagers under the age of 18 will have to be accompanied by a parent to get into the mall in an effort, they hope, to stem what they say are teenage, uh, potential teenage fights, crimes, 
or whatever. Um, I, it's just to me an example of how worried folks in Buckhead are about their safety. Yeah, and don't forget, Bill, that there were uh, there was a shooting involving a security guard uh, sometime back, where uh, two I think fifteen year olds um, literally shot a uh, a security guard. It was it was a pretty intense and difficult, highly publicized situation. So I think part of this is just the need, the urge to do something. Um, I, it doesn't seem like when you look at the big picture of crime in Atlanta that keeping uh, teenagers out of Lenox Mall is, is going to solve any big problem, given all the underlying causes. But again, I think the need that uh, communities feel to to do something, to make someplace seem safer. But I, I don't know. I'm waiting to see if there's a lot of controversy about this, because some of, some of these teenagers work at the mall. <laughs> I mean, that, that's well, a classic and, job and, for some kids. Yeah. Well, T Tammy, that's really what, what Kevin says is interesting. In fact, a teenager can start their job, can go to work unaccompanied, but after hours, they've got to have a parent, if they're under 18, come pick them up. And I'll tell you what, I was glad to give up my chauffeur's cap when my kids turned 16. <laughs> Tammy, weigh in on this. <laughs> uh, so I, I agree. Um, it is it's about making people feel better. Um, does it really address the issue at hand, though? Um, and I also want to throw out there that um, while there's a focus on Buckhead and Lenox and affluent communities inside of Atlanta, um, that there have been um, issues of crime in non-affluent areas of Atlanta that did not seem to get the level of uh, intensity when it comes to highlighting and looking at mitigation efforts. So while I can appreciate the conversation at this moment and appreciate uh, some types of, of, of policies or, or changing in thought processes, um, let's understand that crime is not just um, one particular area, particularly um, those more affluent areas inside of the city, that it actually is, is an effort uh, across the entire city, not to mention that I would um, be interested in the, the data regarding um, if those people committing these crimes actually live inside of the city of Atlanta or are they from outlying areas um, and, and see if that makes a difference as well as the approach of how crime is, is, is looked at inside of the city. Um, Tammy, uh, I don't think we can allow uh, uh, the potential racial uh, uh, in impact in all of this to go unspoken. I certainly remember uh, from a long, long time ago uh, when uh, when the Lenox Square Marta Station opened, uh, the concerns expressed in 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 some I I don't want to overemphasize this, but among some in the white community about the fact that the Marta Station was going to allow for uh, black youths uh, to start coming to the mall where they could cause trouble. I mean, there has always been a racial element involved in all of this, hasn't there? Yes, there has been, and not just the MARTA station opening in Lenox, it is expanding MARTA outside of the city of Atlanta limits as well, right? So there is this racial component um, of, of, of Black youth um, coming into white spaces and then um, creating crime in those spaces. Um, again, we have to look at from a citywide effort um, and understanding that there are underlying concerns that we need to address. Um, the criminal justice system 
is there to catch people where other systems fail. So where are we failing in those other systems um, before we get to that criminal justice element? Um, Claire, you're down there in Milledgeville. What, what are people thinking about when they see the crime rates in Atlanta and then um, the shooting incidents that have picked up dramatically, homicides that have uh, you know, gone up exponential numbers? How are people in your communities down there looking at the city of Atlanta these days? Okay, so um, if we look at the crime rate and issues relating to Atlanta, first of all, I'll put on my political science hat and 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 really evaluate this in terms of how it affects um, elections, how it affects people's um, view of their government. And of course, our views of regarding government and politics are largely shaped by our personal experiences at the local level. And so um, the, the rising crime rates do have an effect. They are salient um, in terms of issues that I think motivate um, activism at the local level, whether it's through voting or whether it's community-based approaches to to addressing these issues. But in terms of what effect, what I've seen, and this is just anecdotal, but um, I have seen um, more of uh, some evidence of more people moving out of Atlanta to the to the suburbs to the to the rural parts of the state um, in response. To, um, to crime and or rising their uh, to rising crime rates in their community. So I have seen in terms of um, in terms of the antidote, <laughs> I've seen um, that in our community. Um, all right, I'll tell you what. Um, I just wanted to bring that up. I, I don't want to. I don't want to turn this into a conversation now about uh, this movement to create a separate city of Buckhead. But I do appreciate you all. Uh, weighing on this in on this move by Lennox Mall. Uh, uh, Kevin, um, a couple other quick issues before we take our final break of the show. I, I mentioned in the note that I sent out to everybody who's on the show today yesterday that uh, there are two sort of interesting, uh, contradictory political uh, uh, movements, whatever you want to call them, happening right now. Um, number one, uh, uh, Fannie Willis, uh, in, a, in an interview she gave to the Daily Beast, said that, yes, indeed, she is absolutely continuing to investigate whether Donald Trump violated election law uh, in the state of Georgia by trying to get uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to, quote, find the votes. That investigation is still underway. One other quick thing. We also know that Donald Trump's uh, uh, ongoing claims about fraud in Georgia played a big role in the fact that the st- that the legislature passed new election laws, uh, which some believe are going to suppress uh, minority votes, particularly. And now Brad Raffensperger is looking for uh, data that will give him uh, reason to be able to claim that the Department of Justice in Washington has been collaborating with Georgia Democrats on the um, lawsuit which DOJ has filed against the state's new election law. I know that's a lot in one gulp, Kevin, but they're both interesting and interrelated stories. 
Yeah, tremendously complicated and a massive battle over the narrative that's going to win out in terms of what's going on uh, with elections. I, I have to say this, too. Um, how would you like to be Fonnie Willis, uh, brand new in her job, massive backload of cases left by her predecessor? <laughs> um, and she's got Rayshard Brooks, uh, that case to deal with where the two cops are indicted. And it's a highly volatile, emotional case. Uh, the Sicoria Turner um, uh, situation, the young girl who was killed near that Wendy's, who, uh, the, the the at least two two suspects were arraigned. Everyone's waiting to see what else will happen. And then, of course, now she's got this Donald Trump thing that she's she's working at. So um, I I uh, think that she must feel like she's earning her money these days. Uh, I you know I, I think it's going to be hard to ever get to a point where a former president would actually be charged and convicted. Now. It's going to happen. I suppose you could argue it could happen in Fulton County, which is Democratic, where we have a recording of this phone call. But I, I, I don't know. It's hard to imagine that it, that it works out that way. Uh, as far as the Brad Raffensperger thing, uh, again, I, I, battle over a narrative. I mean, when we get down to what happened with changes in the Voting Rights Act, relief in the courts was supposed to be the reason that preclearance wasn't necessary anymore in part, right? I mean, there were other reasons. I'm not a constitutional scholar by any means. And um, now there, he appears to be saying, well, you know, that relief is, that style of relief is tainted, I, tainted somehow. I, I think it's all very hard for people to follow. And I think that things are going to be tied up in the courts for an awful long time. And uh, we'll probably be doing a show about this in a year or two or three or four if we're around that long, Bill. <laughs> Tammy and then Claire, I think Kevin made the most salient point here. What this is is a battle for the hearts and minds of voters. Those who want to believe that Donald Trump is is uh, uh, was was in fact trying to overturn the results of the elections, the anti-Trump forces— and Republicans uh, who believe that the, that the Biden Department of Justice is trying to interfere with, with a reasonable new election law. It's a battle for hearts and minds, isn't it, Tammy? It is a battle for hearts and minds. At the same time, what we tend to do is to make the election about one person rather than the masses and the people. Um, so to say that um, one is anti-Trump because one believes that they're working through the system and the system is working, or that someone is um, anti-Biden or pro-Biden um, because of the way that the Justice Department is now working. Um, I think that what's lost in here is, do we have a functioning republic? And are we, mm -hmm. do we have our democratic systems that are... Um, uh, such that there is high political efficacy where the people have trust um, in that their government is hearing them and, and that is working. And I, I would hope that we could have that particular focus, even though I know that sometimes we reduce it down because it becomes a personalized issue. Um, at the same time, I think it's um, important to to keep in mind that here in Georgia, that some of the the um, the focus on how Georgia is working is because of what appears to be a backlash against the high turnout in 2018 um, and the turnout in the 2020 election. And so you can't separate those two from each other because they're so close in proximity um, to, to where it is like 
oh, all of a sudden this is happening. No, there are a series of events that led us to this place, and we have to have ownership of all of those events um, and understand how they're all connected. You know, um, Claire, Tammy, too, makes a really important point here. In the, the bottom line of all this is do we have a functioning republic at this point in American history? Um, if you watch Fox News right now, you will see any number of commentators who are already claiming that the uh, recall election of uh, Governor Newsom in California is uh, so far unfolding with fraud in the early voting. They are already casting doubts on yet another American election, a state election, but let's but an American election. And we're seeing, Claire, an increasing number of analysts, political analysts, uh, commentators, really questioning, um, in not in terribly dramatic terms, the question of whether our republic, our democratic system of government, is now coming unraveled, Claire. Okay, so um, these are some really good <laughs> points that y'all are making. Um, elections are the machinery of democracy, and when there's distrust in the machinery of democracy, <laughs> democracy breaks down. Um, what's important um, to remember here is that the way we receive election results is just as important as the election itself. And there's an increasing tendency for candidates and political parties to shift blame um, to electoral laws and electoral procedures and um, other campaigns to explain their electoral defeats. And so um, the doubt that is cast on the electoral system, the voting system as a whole, when there's doubts cast on that, when there's um, allegations of, of fraud and, and corruption, that, that runs the risk of, of course, um, breaking down this, this machinery of democracy that we call elections. And so um, I think that in terms of the, the health of the republic, the health of of the democracy, we're at a at a watershed moment. I know that um, a lot of attention, uh, more attention is given to candidates um, over time in the horse race of politics, and not as much attention has been given to the actual administration of elections. That did not, we didn't start focusing on that really until after, after the 2000 presidential election and what happened in Florida. Mm. So um, in terms of just studying the nuts and bolts of elections, how this machine functions, and also recognizing that election administrators and election officials need to be involved in this process, too, because election officials um, need the support of legislatures to make their job easier and to also to, um, help build confidence um, with the public. Public trust in elections are just as important as the election themselves uh, itself. I, I got to get to a break, but I want to ask real quickly for you, Claire, and then you, Tammy. But it's got to be quick, unfortunately. Um, sure. You know, a lot of the a lot of people are expressing concerns. Why do we have? Two, why is it a two party uh, system that we live under? Why do we have to be Republicans or Democrats? Well, in Georgia, one of the problems, of course, is that third parties can't get access to the ballots very easily. The, the bar is very high. Um, a federal judge has just, in fact, looked at that and said the bar is too high. And while the legislature uh, set that bar and will have to ultimately make a decision about whether to change it, a federal ruling now allows um, for, say, a libertarian candidate to get on a ballot with only 1% 
of the registered voters signing his petition as opposed to 5%. Uh, Tammy and then Claire again, pretty quickly. How important, right now that's not going to do much, but in the long run, what impact could that have on other parties uh, becoming uh, 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 more um, um, important to the voter? It's, it's critically important. Third-party candidates bring to the forefront um, concerns and challenges that people have that may be overlooked, overshadowed, or diminished by the two-party system. It allows for um, in the, it allows for those that are in the two-party system to maybe come to the middle and moderate some of their positions to understand that they could lose votes because a third-party candidate may have some of the components of both of the two parties. Yet um, there is some middle ground there. So um, it, it actually will bring about a, a diversity of ideas and a diversity uh, of candidates. Um, inside of our political system, which will uh, which will benefit the voters overall, and perhaps the system um, that we look at as politics and policy. Um, uh, Claire, real quick, but I want to uh, clarify this. Judge Lee Martin May uh, basically said this will apply to third-party candidates running for non-statewide offices. What's interesting about that is. Uh, <laughs> That since 1943, when the state set the 5% barrier, no third-party candidate uh, in Georgia for the House has ever gotten on the ballot because they haven't been able to collect the signatures. Claire, your quick thoughts. So you hear libertarians across the state or across the state rejoicing right now because no longer do you need 23,000 signatures. You just need 4,600 to 6,000 signatures to run as a third party <laughs> candidate. So I know that, um, but I agree with Tammy. There's an alternative for, for um, third parties there. This will make it easier for um, a third party to compete in a two party. What is a two party system? Okay. Thank you. Got to get to a break. We'll be back with more in a moment. Kevin Riley, I think most people know that um, Saturday will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. There's certainly going to be plenty of special programming. NPR is going to be doing a number of special programs on this. Um, but, but I want to talk about it just in the brief time that we have left. Just the other day, the remains of Dorothy Morgan, who worked in the North Tower of uh, the World Trade Center when it was struck by an airplane, were identified and returned to her family 20 years later. There was a second unnamed uh, victim of the, of the disaster, of the terrorist attack, who was also identified and returned to the family. And unbeknownst to most people, the medical examiner of New York and the team that she has working with her have continued to try to identify remains and return them to their families. She, they, she said, Bar Barbara Sampson said, 20 years ago, we made a promise to the, to the families of the victims that whatever it takes for as long as it takes to identify their loved ones, we will continue to fulfill that sacred obligation. Kevin, there are still over 1,000 people who we know died in the World Trade Center, whose remains have not been identified and returned to their families. Of all the things we can say in tribute to those victims and in remembering what happened 20 years ago, I can't think of anything more powerful than this. Yeah, and it's, it's a remarkable story that that has been going on 
unnoticed almost uh, for all the all this time, especially at a time when, uh, as we've talked about today, there is such a loss of faith and trust in so many institutions and and in our in our society. Here you have that medical examiner quietly going about the difficult, tragic work of identifying those victims so that their relatives and family members can at least have some sort of closure on it. And I just think it highlights um, the the event that has defined uh, defined so much for a couple of generations of Americans. Um, it's hard to believe it was 20 years ago. Um, Kevin, you and I are the old ones on this panel, so we have very vivid memories of working in our various news organizations, me at Channel 2, you, I think, probably in Dayton at that point on this story. But, but, but um, Claire and Tammy, you're both much younger than we are. I'm, um, Tammy, what are your recollections of, of 9-11? I, I don't have any idea how old you are, so I, I, you may have been very, very little. <laughs> um, I was... Um an adult. Um, and I vividly remember it was a Tuesday. Um, I turned on the TV because I was off, um, that day and did not go to work. And I was wondering why was the television showing the same picture regardless of the channel I turned to. Um, and then when I stopped turning the channels and realized what was happening, um, it's, it, it's, it was heavy, the weight of what was happening. Um, and then the people, and then the dust, and the smoke, um, and the screens. It, it was devastating. Uh, Claire? I was a freshman in college, and I was getting ready for class, um, watching the news as I was getting ready, and I actually saw the event unfold on live television. And I just remember everything about that day is haunting. The blue sky, it was a beautiful day across the East Coast, actually. It was a beautiful day in Georgia. And I just remember just the stark contrast between what I was seeing on TV and the, the, the terror that I was witnessing on television and what was going on. I know that our, my college released um, students. We canceled classes that day. Um, and I went home and I remember watching with my parents, the um, members of Congress standing on the front steps singing God Bless America. And I just remember just you know, just the the uncertainty, and and I can't believe, as you said, it was twenty years ago. Kevin, our lives have changed irrevocably in those years since then. Yeah, I think it's fair to say we're a different country, we're different people, uh, perhaps in some ways better, and sadly, in some ways worse. Um, thank you all for uh, talking about uh, that to close the show today, but also for a wonderful conversation about the other subjects that we took up on Political uh, Rewind today. Uh, Tammy Greer, uh, Claire Sanders, Kevin Riley, what a pleasure to have you here today. Um, we'll be back, of course, tomorrow. Honoré Fanon Jeffers will uh, be with us. Uh, in the meantime, take care, stay healthy. Um, wear your mask indoors as if you were a student at Clark Atlanta University. And as Kevin Riley says, yes, we'll continue to push. Please get vaccinated on this show, just as he's doing at the AJC. See everybody tomorrow.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.